1: Welcome to the New Books
0: Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dan Moran. I am thrilled to be here today with Stephen Galloway, author of Truly Madly, Vivian Lee, Lawrence Olivier, and the Romance of the Century, published in 2022 by Grand Central Publishing and coming out in paperback in February of 2023. It is an absolute terrific read, and I cannot wait to talk to Stephen about this book. Welcome, Stephen.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Lovely to be here.
0: So thanks for coming on the show. Now, you are currently the dean of Chapman University's Dodge College of Film and Media Arts. But prior to that, you had a job in which you were really plugged into the world of film and celebrity culture. And
1: that job was? Well, I was the executive editor at The Hollywood Reporter, and I was there for 27 years.
0: And what was that job like?
1: Well, it was many jobs because I started uh, as a part-time $13 an hour, beat reporter and then uh, ran all the film coverage and then later events and people don't realize that they'll they'll hear a title like that and people would read my byline but I was also producing television shows a lot of our students know the roundtables I used to do with the actors and directors and it's very glamorous when it's not your day job (laughs) and then it's hard work you know right right I've, I've said to everybody, if I never meet another celebrity, I will be only too thrilled. <laughs> it was great. Um, the inside the film business is not the outside and the people are complicated and driven by stress and insecurity and anxiety because these are not stable jobs. And then you go to the world of academia and people have fled that world into academia because it is safe and secure. It doesn't pay as well, the rewards aren't as great. So it's a very different ecosystem.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about your book about two great celebrities, Lawrence Olivier and Vivian Leigh. And I, I want to start by asking about your motivation for writing this. So, we already have several, as you know, noteworthy biographies of these people, right? We have we have biographers like Donald Spoto, we have Terry Coleman, we have Anne Edwards, we have Olivier's autobiography, we have a book by his son um, Tarquin, and here comes Stephen Galloway and says, "You know what? We need a new book about these people." And this marriage, why?
1: Well, you put the emphasis on and this marriage. There have been biographies of both. I wanted to write the biography of a marriage. That's a very different thing. And I wondered if I could actually penetrate that most mysterious of things. You know, we, we, we know couples and we know one side of the argument. And then you hear the other side and you think, wow, is this the same person? Now I was trying to as objective as I could discover the mechanics of two very complicated people navigating fame and sex and mental illness. So my goal was different. And at one point, when I'd written the first draft of the book, I looked and I thought, this isn't a double biography. This is the biography of Mash." And I cut the first 80 pages of the book and I wanted to put the focus on that. And by the way, that meant 6 months of work that meant 2 weeks traveling across india doing research where i was violently ill throwing up on the bathroom floor never go to india and don't drink bottled water you know and you just hit delete and wow it's gone wow but that's what i wanted it to be also i wanted to shed a modern light on mental illness and really speak to leading experts about bipolar or or manic depression as it was called back then because our whole view of this has changed certainly in the 50 plus years since Vivian Lee died but I wanted to shed insight and in some way every biography reflects its own time and concerns so mine is quite different from books that were written 30 or 40 years ago. Sure.
0: Well, I was reading, as I was reading your book, I was struck by a line from That Hamilton Woman, which your book inspired me to rewatch. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. In which Vivian Lee, she plays Lady Hamilton and Laurence Olivier, you know, plays Lord Nelson. And the line is, and as soon as I saw this in the, the film, I thought, oh, this is just like that book. The line is when Lord Spencer says to Lady Nelson, only the weaknesses of the great are glaring. And I thought of your book right away. So, so how would you relate that? That you know, only the weaknesses of the great are glaring. How would you relate that to your book?
1: It's a very great question because biography is not real life, and yet you're trying to capture it. And you know, my first book was a biography of Sherry Lansing, who was for 25 years the most powerful woman in Hollywood. And at one point, I'm talking about her first, last ceiling shattering moment as president of Fox, and she's making a film called The Verdict with Robert Redford and everything is going wrong. And finally he disappears. Of course, it ended up being made with Paul Newman. Right. And when she saw the book, she said, but, but you didn't say at the same time as this is happening, the studio is being sold and you guys coming in. And I said, the problem with clarity is I either put that bit ahead of the story or after it, but I can't have two, three things happening simultaneously on the page. That's the difference. So, when I wrote this book, one of the hard things was to know how to get the balance right and show them warts and all, but still have the empathy that I felt for them. And I think in the first version of the book, I put in so many stories about what they didn't do great, that it actually distorted the truth. And so, you know, there's that line, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Right, The whole truth and nothing but the truth actually is sometimes in conflict. And I found I had to take some of those stories out uh, so that it actually is a balanced book and and presents them in a fair light. And it's extraordinarily difficult to judge. Um, you know, In real life, people may use the F word all the time and it's funny or, or fits them. And then in print you go, oh, that reads differently. So, even when I've done profiles of celebrities, you're weighing that. I remember interviewing Natalie Portman, and she put me in a difficult situation because we arrived. She wasn't in a great mood. And again, I only know her from the couple of hours I'm spending with her. And she immediately pulls out a record and pops it on the table in front of me. And I said, have you been burned by interviews? She said, no, I just want to be very sure. OK, so suddenly she wants to make sure she's very accurately quoted but she uses the word like to pepper every sentence now do i keep that and it looks stupid but it's the truth right or do i cut it out in which case she looks better but it's not quite the truth these are really difficult little decisions that completely impact how the subject comes across
0: that's a great, that's a great point because one of the things I was going to ask you later in the interview, but I'm going to ask you right now was that, you know, some of the scenes in the book and we'll get into their story in a second, but some of the scenes of the book are tough to read. I mean, you have like Vivian being very crude, you know, they're finding her naked in a garden and things like that and, or being drunk. Like, so one of my things I, I wanted to ask you was, was there any point at which you thought to myself, you thought to yourself, like, maybe I shouldn't be telling all these stories. I'm telling tales out of school, like, like that, that must've been a tough thing to weigh to, about those stories.
1: No, not the stories, because I felt I could present them accurately and with empathy. And she behaved like that when she was horribly under the square. It's just this terrible illness. Yeah. But I did think a lot when the story began, when I I remember reading that it had been 50 years since her death. And then I read that the Victorian Album Museum had bought her archive. And then I traveled to London. Um, I, I I live in L.A. to going to the archive and thought, oh, this is fascinating. This is much more than an article. Right. But here I am sitting there, reading Olivier's love letters, and holding them in my hands. And these are the most private pieces of correspondence, and were never designed to be read. And I really thought, do I have the right, morally, to reproduce them? And by the way, I don't have a definitive answer. Some people say, right. no, you don't. Right. The thing that Tipped me is I finally thought they are dead. The the families' estates gave me permission to quote from the letters. And what would history be if we couldn't do that? And right. so, on some larger level, I thought there is a there is a greater good that comes from this. Even though I'm sure they'd be embarrassed, but but I still wrestled with, you know, where where does uh, gossip end in history? Begins. If we had a letter from Henry VIII or George Washington, we wouldn't hesitate. Well, if it's two actors and they haven't been dead that long, you know, what are the rules? There are no hard rules. Yeah. That's
0: a great point. And you certainly, you know, their their humanity comes through and on every page. So it's certainly not like any of the scenes are, are salacious or, or sensational or things like that. I think they're always shown in, in, in the, with a perfect pitch. So let, let's talk about these people. So how did Olivier and Vivian Lee meet?
1: So Olivier was a rising star, very much the star of the stage, not the screen. Um, he was a lonely boy. His mother died when he was very young, which was the great tragedy of his life, brought up by this zealot father, who was a country parson, who at one point turned his back on the country parsonage and went to work in the slums of London, known as the piggeries and the potters, where, you know, sewage sloshed around in pools in the street and it's very hard upbringing. And then he became an actor. Noel Coward gave him a big break in private lives and then Hollywood spotted him. And it's hard to connect Olivier, the guy we've seen in films like Marathon Man with the young man who actually starred in a movie with Greta Garbo, the very beginning of the sound era and she fired him. That's why you won't see him in that movie. And he went back to London with his tail between his legs, distraught, hated Hollywood. He hated because he'd failed. And he begins to build a career as an actor. But he was a matinee idol. He wasn't Lord Olivier. And he was married, not very happily. And Vivian was a young woman born in India. Her family had brought her to London, put her in this very strict Catholic boarding school. She got married very young, had a child. And here she is extremely young, untested, untried, inexperienced. And she goes to the theater and sees this play with Olivier. And in that moment, she turns to a friend and says, this is the man I'm going to marry. But they were both married (laughs) and they both had kids and they fell in love. And there are different ways to fall in love. And this was the most extraordinary, irrepressible passion. And passion is a different thing. As many of us know, you know it consumes you. It's painful. It's often like a drug. You know, you 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 look back afterwards and think, why why was I with that woman? And and they, he couldn't resist it. They could not resist, and everything went out the window. Mor- morality, responsibility, religion, and finally one night they eloped together, ran off, left their families and kids, and it was scandalous and they was he was a star of the theater she'd just begun to be a s- s- smaller star and then a year into the relationship he's offered Wuthering Heights she comes to see him in LA on the very first day of shooting of Gone with the Wind and their agent brings her to the set and David O. Sells and excess, your Scarlett O'Hara and overnight, they became the most famous couple alive.
0: Yeah, the the elopement scenes reminded me of Ingrid Bergman and Roberto Rossellini. The same, the same kind of, you know, like uh, just, I'm going to throw everything to the wind, you know, throw caution to the wind, and this is what we're going to do, and and caught up in this whirlwind of passion.
1: Yeah, he felt guilty for the rest of his life. She never did, even though she had that Catholic upbringing. She never felt guilt. Right. Um, what well, well, I was lucky because. Um, One set of documents I found was a series of hundreds of letters written by one of Olivier's closest friends to a young guy when the friend was quite old, and he would just tell lots of stories. And one of them was the Night of the elopement when Larry and Vivian went to stay with his friend. And suddenly you're getting it from another person's point of view. It's really fascinating. And another thing, you know, I'd, I'd never written a book about dead people. And I always thought, well, without just instinct and intuition, would I be able to read them right? The funny thing is, when you're reading the letters in the diaries, you really see like the layers of an onion, how people change. You know, when we look back on our lives, we say, well, this was the pivotal moment, and then this happened, and that happened. And we've created our own narrative that may or may not be true. And when you're reading the diaries, the letters, it's in the moment what was going on and how they felt. And, and I saw them really change, especially Olivier.
0: Yeah. Well, it's. You, and there's so many letters and so many diaries quoted in the book. And there's a really poignant one early in the book when Herbert Lee Holman, who was Vivian's then husband, who, who she left for Lawrence Olivier, he finds out the affair and he writes to her. And this was one of the many letters in the book that I read. And it was like your whole like you said, you're like, wow, I can't believe I'm reading this. And mm-hmm. here's what he said to her. I want to quote his letter to her and I want to get your reaction. He says, "I know very well it's not me you have run away from, but yourself. You did not tell me what was happening, and I did not guess." You put nothing into it, darling, what it was most necessary. And by letting yourself fail, you have made yourself weaker for your next trial of strength. Don't put your trust in sand. Now, after you read the whole book, those those words take on you know additional weight, don't you think?
1: They're incredible words and heartbreaking yes. because she married this man. She met him when she was 18 or 19. She had a baby very soon afterwards. And he was... He was like Ashley Wilkes in Gone with the Wind. But of course, Scarlet Falls for Rhett Butler, you know. And he looked like Ashley Wilkes. He was 10 or 11 years older than her, lawyer, very stable, not a man of tempestuous emotion until his wife leaves him. Mm -hmm. And he was heartbroken. And he was left with their daughter. He never married again. I don't think he even had a very successful relationship afterwards, at least that I'm aware of. And he writes this letter. And on the one hand, it's a bit patronizing. And on the other hand, you know the heartbreak he's going through. And with all of this, as a writer, you're juggling, well, how do I reflect both the patronizing and the heartbreak? And um, later, he became very close friends with both of them. And to the end of his life, he was the most staunch pillar for Vivian.
0: Yeah, he was. He comes out as very, very, you know, stand up at as, as, as the end of the
1: book. I think other than this, the wording of this letter, who can blame him? This, He was extraordinary.
0: Yes, he was. So... I want to go back to what you said earlier about Vivian watching Lawrence Olivier on stage. And what's so interesting about this story is that you have you have actors who like full in love through their art. I thought that was a great theme of the book. Right. They, they almost use their art as a means of courtship. So she's watching, I think, half his performances at the Old Vic. Right. Um, she watches him play Hamlet. They make three films together. He kind of guides her through the trials of playing Scarlett O'Hara. But another theme of your book, which I thought was so great, was that there's all this acting, quote unquote, that goes on like off stage and off the screen. And they're constantly having to act at first that they're not an item, that they are an item, and, and that that these actors have to be on 24-7 with this charade. And, and did that occur to you as you were writing the book? Or is that something that in hindsight became apparent? Yes.
1: Uh, first of all, it's interesting because we all pretend in our lives and... The pretense is more visible when people are doing it professionally, but we all have that moments. You have to like your wife's best friend, or pretend you agree with your boss's judgments, and we all have a slightly different persona in different situations, but not to that extent. You know, they were and they were playing on a very global stage. Uh, Olivier himself said, and his, I spoke to both his sons. And the youngest son, who's really lovely, and was very gracious to him to speak to me because I can't imagine he wanted to be, to resurrect his father's previous marriage. Um, but he said at one point his father said to him, I played more than 200 roles, 200 characters, but I don't know my own. Hmm. Um, interestingly, writing about them, it, you know, it's very hard to enter the mind of somebody with extreme mental illness. But in some ways, I found her easier to understand than him. And, and maybe one of the reasons is he so visibly did change. You know, the letters when he's going off in America doing Wuthering Heights, um, they're very callow, shallow, mm-hmm. full of himself. You know, he's on the ship going from London to America. It's November 1938. And he bumps into a couple of friends. They tell him how terrible Neville Chamberlain is. And you know about all these Nazis. And he seems shocked. And he writes that, oh, my God, I had no idea that the Chamberlain was so bad and all this stuff was going on. It's November 1938. And then you read the letters again 20 years later. And he's a much more worldly, aware, somewhat more um, paranoid and and a much darker personality. Um, And the letters change from being gushing love letters of, you know, please send me your panties to... (laughs) very thoughtful ones. I mean, the letters that he wrote when he was shooting Henry V are amazing and very different. They're they're, they're not young love. They're mature love.
0: Well, I love what you said about how he might be a harder nut to crack and that he's, because we, I mean, I I certainly did before I read page one of your book had this image of Laurence Olivier. I mean, I've watched him all my life and then you you start to get it and then you realize he he has insecurities just like everybody else. And you think, well, you know, he's, how can Laurence Olivier be? Insecure about anything. He's Lawrence Olivier. And like you have, you have this great quote you say late in the book, you say, here's a quote from you only on stage did the mask come off as if solely in the midst of illusion could Larry be real. And then you quote him as saying, thank Christ for the next three hours, I'll be Coriolanus, nothing like me.
1: Yes, it's extraordinary. I forgot that line, but it really is an amazing thing that he could only find himself by playing somebody.
0: By playing somebody else.
1: Yeah. And so- one of the things, you know, you brought up pretense, but art and life are so integrated in their relationship. It fascinated me. It fascinated me on two levels. First of all, how much each one contributed to the other's art consciously. You know, he gave her advice, but she gave him advice. She would be there when he was shooting the film's, And and talking to him, she was a much more intellectual person than he was. She spoke several languages, read voluminously. I wish we knew the advice she'd given him about Henry V and Hamlet and Richard III. So there's a conscious interaction, and he directs her a lot on stage. And then there's the one where everything he went through with her was channeled into his work. And I've never seen this so directly. You know, you always wonder with an artist... Does their art reflect the, the life they're living in that moment? Mm. You know, what was Shakespeare going through when he wrote King Lear? Right. And Vivian was going through one of her worst manic depressive periods and paralyzed by depression mm-hmm. when Olivier was preparing Richard III, you know, probably his greatest role, if, if, if there is one. And he will be at home playing the perfect husband, taking care of her, honey, are you okay? Please take care. And then all the resentment and the anger and the pools of fury, he lets out in the role. And At one point he says, when he's at home, he would look in the mirror and the devil stared back. And I've never seen that kind of connection. Simon Callow, the actor said, he would not have been the actor he was. And he wasn't at the beginning of his career. He was a matinee idol. Right. He grew far more than almost any actor. He wouldn't have been that if he hadn't gone through the emotional whirlpools that he did with her. Yeah.
0: You wonder how much how much was he thinking of her in when he when he was Richard talking to Lady Anne or
1: <laughs> yes. Um well, well, let... he, wanted, he wanted her to play that part. Yes, he did. That's right. Even later, there's a great line, the great English actress Rosemary Harris um told me. You know she was playing Ophelia and the mad scene, and he was pushing her to go more, more, worse, worse to the point where she could barely take it. And he quietly said, "This is what I lived through. It's sad.
0: it's very sad. It is very sad." Um, well, let's let's go back to some of those films. So by the by the late forties, he's already made Henry the Fifth and Hamlet, his films of that. He had a stage triumph as Richard III. He hasn't made the film yet, but he was on stage, right? Vivian had her hits on stage. She was in the school for Scandal. She was in Antigone. But then you have this, this, I thought this was really interesting. I want to talk about their their quasi rivalry, I guess, for a little bit. You say, no matter how well she did, she was constantly reminded that her talent paled beside his. So was there anything ever, do you think like a professional rivalry between the two of them?
1: Well, there was briefly coming from him. This is much debated by you know people Um, even the night she won the Oscar for Gone with the Wind there are different versions you know that uh, there are different photos taken of him backstage and he actually looks very happy but he said he was so jealous he wanted to conquer on the head with it and it's interesting because um, his realm was the stage hers was the screen Hmm. and she had a power on screen that he didn't have He had a power on stage that she didn't have, but she operated in his realm. And in that realm, where he could be the king, he was actually very gracious, uh, as benevolent dictators can be gracious. (laughs) Um, But she was never on his level and she got measured. And a turning point came uh, late in the 50s when the great British critic Kenneth Tynan, most astute but also venomous writers ever, Said he stoops to her level. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a turning point because he realized it's my marriage or my career. And at that point, the role he was playing was the grand British aristocrat, Sir Lawrence Olivier, with a wonderful country estate. And he was sick of it. And he was going to do a film with Marilyn Monroe called uh, The Prince and the Showgirl. They were starting to shoot. Marilyn was a nightmare beyond belief. Arthur Miller, her husband, came out with her. Miller said, I want to go to theatre. And Olivier said, what? Miller says, oh, there's this new play by John Osborne, Look Back in Anger. Oh, Olivier says, dear boy, you don't see that. It's just, you know, this socialist, anti-national, you know, rah, rah, rah. And Miller said, no, 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 I I want to see it. And they go. And halfway through, and, you know, it was a watershed moment in British theatre because it was really the first time that working class young people have been put front and center and where unpleasant characters were allowed to dominate mm-hmm. and where you know the main character doesn't have a monologue he has a rant and halfway through Olivier turns to Miller and says what do you think and Miller says well it's got flaws but this is the real thing and afterwards they meet the right this young shaggy-haired bohemian already bitter in his twenties, John Osborne. And Olivier says, I say, dear boy, you wouldn't have a play for me, would you? And John Osborne wrote The Entertainer and Olivier turned his back on the manor, turned his back on the grand life, left the West End to go to the equivalent of off-off Broadway, the Royal Court. Don't be deceived by the word royal. And for £50 pounds a week, nothing laid this seedy, vaudevillian failure. And at one point, he turned to a friend of his and said, this really is me, isn't it? My God. Yeah. What an insight and, and self-view. Yeah. And it propelled the third act of his career. But at the same time, it was the end of Vivian. And she yeah. came to rehearsal late in the game and cried.
0: Yeah. When what I... What, not, you your book inspired me to watch the film of The Entertainer again. And after reading your book, I thought to myself, you know, it's fun to imagine, you know, being Henry V, but it's a, much, it's a lot more sobering to realize you might be, you know, Archie in The Entertainer.
1: He actually hated the film. And he was furious with Tony Richardson and the way he directed it. Right. <laughs> And Olivia on film can come across as Hamish. And one of his friends said, I think it was, it was John Mills maybe said to one of his daughters, you can't imagine how electric he was on stage. He had that great gift that a truly wonderful stage act has of somehow being able to read the audience and pivot. Right. Uh, you know, that relish like, like a great athlete of I'm in front of the crowd and my game is going to rise, not fall.
0: And you talk about that when he played Coriolanus, like how how electrifying he was. But you also talk about, didn't he do a production of Romeo and Juliet with Vivian Lee that did not work out so well? Can you talk so about bad. that?
1: This is what people don't realize that the uh, you know she done Gone with the Wind, he done Wuthering Heights. They were bigger than yeah, they, yeah, they were top Richard of the Gordon world. Taylor, the Kardashians, you know, and so they're advised, why don't you take your savings and and invest in a touring production. Everyone will come see it. And they did Romeo Juliet was terrible. Olivier was still a point where no one could understand his mangling of Shakespeare. At one point he jumped up on the balcony and couldn't quite clutch it and goes, you know, is left dangling by his fingers. And the audience laughed when they got to New York, the, the heat wave was so intense that his putty nose is melting from him. They lost everything. He says in his book, he lost everything, but basically she lost everything too. And when I say his book, he wrote his own autobiography, which is terrific, Confessions of an Actor and Very Honest. Um, here's what's fascinating about Olivier. Olivier had done Juliet on stage previously with John Gielgud, his great rival. And great artists, there's a theory, as you probably know, that Harold Bloom wrote, the great artists, find one other artist mm-hmm. not to copy but to turn against right. Gielgud was that artist and Olivier looked and said he's got the most beautiful poetic, mellifluous voice languid acting I'm going to be earth where he is heaven I'm going to be you know, fire where he is water um, I'm going to be real where he is poetic it really shapes actors. so they both did Romeo and Juliet, alternating Romeo and Mercutio, and Olivier got negative reviews as Romeo. Somebody else would say, I'm never going to do that again. He went back and did it. Mm-hmm. His early Macbeth was um, a failure. He went back and did it. Right. His early Othello with Ralph Richardson was a failure. He went back and did it. And I find that extraordinary, Uh, his willingness to, to challenge himself, to reinvent himself, shed one skin, and ultimately it meant shedding Vivian.
0: What's fascinating is that, you know, the idea that you can imagine Lawrence Olivier, as you said, mangling Shakespeare, but he did. And he had a but because of course the image of him is he was, he was, he, he, he came out of the womb speaking, you know, now is the winter of our discontent. And uh, and just to imagine him doing that. But you also, I, I can't resist asking you about this too, because this, you know, there's so many moments when you read and you say, Oh, I wish I could have seen that. Can you tell our listeners about the time when they tried to stage Hamlet? at Elsinore, oh and the weather was so bad, and they took it inside, and what happened as a result of that?
1: Well, it's extraordinary. So here they are, They've, they're having an affair, they're still married. Right. Vivian has had one stage hit, but it's kind of a starlet without a job. Olivier is a matinee idol, and he decides to tackle the role for which Gilgurd, who's like three years old, is the most famous, Hamlet. And they do it to the Old Vic, and then they go on tour. And they're having an affair. Olivia's wife has gone with them. Um, She's shunted off to the side with another actor who has, Alec Guinness, who has to kind of take care of her. Guinness always hated Olivier and the affair's happening. So they ship all the the scenery, the costumes to Denmark. They're going to do it for a week on the ramparts of the castle that Shafe, of course, never saw, <laughs> this is Elsinore. Right. And they go out, uh, they're doing a film for Alexander Corder, the p- great producer, mm-hmm. Korda's let them have a week off. And they arrive and the night they're gonna do their first performance, it absolutely buckets with rain. And they scramble and they set up everything indoors in a ballroom and go in knowing it has to be a disaster. And somehow it's the opposite right gigantic triumph this is alleviate his best yeah and then of course you have this extraordinary thing um which is off stage the next day she has her first breakdown and she attacks him physically as well as verbally and he's never seen anything like him. he doesn't know what it is and and this is the moment where the book begins because in that moment he has to choose am i going to go deeper or am I gonna back off? And he decides to go deeper and they commit to running away together when they get back home. Right.
0: And then he tries to balance his marriage and his art and and taking care of her. Let's talk about her for for a couple of minutes. Um, You know, one of her great parts of course was Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar named Desire, who of course in that play and in that film suffers a nervous breakdown. So reading your book, maybe think about that play and that film in a new light. You you can't you can't unsee you know, what what I've seen in your book. And the next time you watch Crane of Desire, and you even quote Vivian saying that playing Blanche, you quote her saying quote it tapped me into madness. So I'd like you to, if you can, to back up a little bit and talk about how did Vivian get that part with the help of Irene Selznick, and how did she end up in the play? And then you know because th- she's that and Scarlett O'Hara are, th- are probably her two greatest parts in film.
1: Irene Selznick was the great with the wind producer David O. Selznick's wife and at some point he fell in love with Jennifer Jones and they split up and she here she is she's the daughter of Louis B. Mesh she is Hollywood royalty and she's going to reinvent herself and she decides to move to New York and be a stage producer and the first manuscript she's shown is a play called A Streetcar Named Desire which of course is one of the greatest stage productions ever and she has Ilya Kazan to direct with Brando. And they cast Jessica Tandy, great British actress. People will have seen her in Driving Miss Daisy, who also, by the way, had an affair with Olivier when she was young. And it's been a hit. And now they're bringing it to England. And Vivian is sent the script and immediately knows how great it is. Olivier didn't. Right. He, he was not intellectually <laughs> or artistically on her, her level as a judge. He didn't want to do it. He thought it was a bit tacky. He was at the point where he still valued being Sir Lawrence and Sir Lawrence right. only do certain kinds of work. What's interesting, and he did it for her, and I think over and over again, you actually see him being very generous to make sure that her career is... Well, do people forget this? And so he agrees to do it, and what is interesting is that Tennessee Williams didn't want her and they wanted Olivier who was the king of the British theater but they didn't want his second-rate wife and so Tennessee Williams comes to England to see her in repertoire in three plays and finally agrees to go with her and they do and of course it's a huge hit but it's the most stressful play and it's hours long even though Olivier cut an hour of it and Stress and exhaustion are two things that can trigger bipolar episodes. And they did. And she would roam the streets after the stage production into the red light district speaking to the prostitutes. What's interesting is after that, when they did the film, even though Kazan, the director, denied it, he didn't want her. That he wanted Olivia de Havilland and she couldn't do it. And the studio and the producer want her. And there's a whole series of letters back and forth. They're not in the book. Where Kazan was writing to Jack Warner, Kazan was trying to muscle out the producer from getting the credit. And Warner wrote and said, listen, he was the one who said Vivian Lee, not you. And initially Kazan and Vivian Lee really didn't like each other. And over time, he really came to admire her. What
0: did you think of Marla Brando?
1: The first time they met, um He didn't seem very clean, and she said, "You know, what do you do to to clean?" He said, "I basically, you know, throw up a gob of spit and get under it." They really came to adore each other.
0: Yeah, they did.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. She never really connected with the method, right? But you know, she understood talent and she respected it. He was Olivier was jealous, right? He wasn't. She never was. There's not a letter from her that this is somebody yeah. and of course she discovered peter finch in australia that she whom she later had a very passionate affair. A very
0: tumultuous affair with, right? It was funny because Brando was so, uh, you know, as as everyone knows, he was so um, the opposite of what Olivier was. Because you say that Olivier, your phrase is he confined himself to the canon, and I love all the parts where he's trying to cut down the the, the time of *Streetcar*, and Tennessee Williams is saying no because it's already a very talky play, and he's trying to cut it down and cut it down. And so Marlon Brando is everything that you know Sir Lawrence Olivier is not. But but Vivian was able to get along with both of them and, and you know and straddle those two worlds. Artistically, well, they got on well too, yeah, and yeah. they would
1: go skinny dipping in Marlon Brando's pool. Uh, <laughs> Interesting enough, um, but and there's an amazing letter I found. There's a private Brando archive in Hollywood, and it's an extraordinary thing because it's not open to the public. But I happen to know one of the trustees, and you drive up this rundown street in Hollywood and you think this can't be the right address and you get out and this garage and you ring the buzzer and then the garage door <laughs> opens up and it's like stepping into the future, glass and steel. They have a, a, a tank that whatever there's a fire doesn't, doesn't have, a, have a sprinkler system. It sucks out the oxygen to, and there's this archive. Wow. And in the Brando archive, I found this amazing letter from Jessica Tandy written to him at the beginning when they were in rehearsals for Streetcar and she tells him as partly quoted but not fully quoted in the book and she says what is this you're doing what is this stuttering stammering thing Is, is is that deliberate or is that an affectation and can you actually learn the lines this is this is great writing and it merits learning the lines." and she says to him be like Olivier, learn from Olivier. And of course, oh. Brando would become the other person who's hailed as the greatest actor.
0: Right, that's great that they have that. But they he was remind... as
1: unself-disciplined, especially later, right. as Olivier Olivier would go out into the field for hours just to practice voice. Mm-hmm. And he could hold a breath for four minutes. You know, I watched um, the Denzel Washington Macbeth Sure, and there's so do I. Yeah. extraordinary speech in it, you know, and pity, like a naked newborn babe right. striding the blast. No one's ever quite been able to make sense of the speech, but I still love it. And there's a point where Denzel takes a breath in the middle, in the middle of a line, not Olivier. He could control that. and Yes, his right. technique, um, but on stage that matters.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's something that Brando would just, kind of like blow off he would you would never catch him in a field you know practicing his his pronunciation so your book is as you said earlier it's it's not a dual biography it's it's a look at how people react to mental illness so let's Mm. talk more about vivian you you quote the actress maxine audley saying that some people didn't think she had an illness Mm. and the quote is we all thought she was just behaving badly so my question as i read this that i want to ask you now was Did you ever like question your own diagnosis of her? Like you're, you're not a psychologist, right? So did you ever question your own diagnosis of her? Like, did you ever have moments, you know, when you were fashioning the book where you said, well, is this, is this her suffering from bipolar disorder or is she just behaving badly here? Like, you know, where do you draw that line? And did that ever confuse you?
1: Only at one moment, which I'll talk about in a second. The answer is no, because, um, I, I spoke to some of the world's leading experts. You know, the heads of the bipolar disorders clinic at Stanford, uh, the head of the psychiatry department at Oxford. I ran every single thing past them, and things that were unclear to me. Um, I, for instance, her teenage diaries are in the archive. They're those little wafer thin diaries. We have like, you know, two inches square to write the day's events. And there's a moment where her handwriting flies out of control is this just a teenager going berserk or is it the first visible sign well I asked them when is the first manifestation and and um, one of the experts said often it's right after puberty which this was and then to double check I was reading a biography of the great British stage producer Binky Beaumont. And at one point, he says to a friend, You could always tell when Vivian was going to have an episode because her handwriting would start changing. And so I had two authentications. The one moment when I did think it is in the Selznick archive, which is in Selznick's archive, David O. Selznick in the University of Texas, is 3,000 boxes full of files. And you can construct the making of Gone with the Wind. almost hour by hour because he would shoot memos like we do emails he had a london office and the person who headed it would constantly be writing letters with the reports about what what's going on she hated the oliviers and i wish i could have quoted these letters in full because they would drive her nuts and they'd come in and demand this and demand that and it was just terrible star behavior and i thought at that point well that's who they were too in this moment and and one of the hard things in writing a a book is one of the things that separates it from wikipedia is actually point of view but if your point of view is everybody's different from one second to the next you are i am you know oh i met that guy who was so great and then you find out wow he actually went and you know murdered somebody really but we have so many different moments and facets and colors and shades and differences between the internal and external. If you put all that in, you could write a whole book about one hour, or as Virginia Woolf did, Mrs. Dalloway, a day. Uh, The very fact of narrative and clarity means you don't that. At times they behave like prima donnas Mm -hmm. and they felt very stressed by cells. cells, nick. They behave badly. So in that moment, I weighed a lot. How do I present this? What's the right way to see it? Does it show are they actually completely different, impossible, sport, capricious movie stars? Well, sometimes they were.
0: But often they weren't. So let's talk about what happens to Vivian as her life goes on. I wanna I wanna give you probably my favorite sentence in the whole book. And this is certainly the saddest. And this is what you say about Vivian in 1967. This is the year she died. You say, quote, she was doing everything to stay beautiful Mm. and nothing to stay alive. Mm. That's, that's an extraordinary sentence that Mm. the the more, the more you parse it about the pressures on her and what it's like to be an actress. And you Mm. she was doing everything to stay beautiful and nothing to stay alive. So can you, can you talk about that sentence and then talk about it? Oh, absolutely.
1: By the way, thank you for the sentences you've chosen. They're not written casually. Sure. Um, I thought about that a lot. Um, First of all, she had tuberculosis and she died of tuberculosis. Yeah. There is some question about whether she really died from that, but that is what, because they did have antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And I actually had to do quite a bit of research to find out if she'd been taking them uh, it, and found out that it was, and I spoke to one of the leading experts on tuberculosis. Um, they did have medication which they didn't for bipolar you know lithium only came in later so it's very easy to romanticize oh this person had a death wish wanted to die she splits up with olivier in fact she was sad and joyful and lived with pain and also happiness but it looks like she wasn't taking the medication the medication is very very hard to take has horrible side effects she wasn't taking she was smoking she was having company all the time when she shouldn't have done. And so, and she always looked good and she was very aware of aging. She'd started wearing dark sunglasses everywhere. When, she, when Marilyn Monroe came, she looked and said, I don't look like this anymore. You know, well, she had a very different look from Marilyn, uh, but she was aware of it. But yes, I did conclude that it may be too strong, say she had a death, which I really think it is too strong, but on an unconscious level, perhaps, she wasn't doing what she needed to do. Yeah. And um, who knows why? It, 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 was it because of some profound loneliness after Olivier? Was it because she just didn't like the medicine and was being irresponsible? I don't know.
0: How did Olivier react to her death?
1: He was devastated. You know, no split up is simple. Right. And one of the most touching things, and that section of the book ends with it, is... The letters they send you know after the divorce was official i can't read them without without crying you know right. because they're so full of love and you can love somebody but know that the marriage is over mm-hmm. and she never stopped being in love with him he never stopped loving her they're two different things mm-hmm. um she kept his photo by her bedside, yeah. even when she had a pretty good relationship with someone else, Jack Merivale. I, I would hate that, you know, your girlfriend has the ex's photo in photo by the bed next to you. Right. Olivia moved on and got married to Joan Plowright, had kids, had affairs, many. There's a lot of speculation that he might have been bisexual. And I discounted it. You know, maybe when he was in a boarding school, something happened, You know, everyone says now people are on a spectrum, but there's a ton of evidence of straight affairs and there's no evidence. There's a letter to an older actor. A lot of this is interpretation, you know, where where they're calling each other, oh, you silly C-word or whatever. Having been a British schoolboy, this is how we used to speak, and I'm ashamed of it. Um, But he did have a lot of affairs with other women.
0: Yeah. Well, it reminded me of when when uh, Laertes talks about his, Hamlet's father, and he starts praising him, and Hamlet says he was a man, Horatio. That's the, he was a person, and that and that that certainly was, was a man.
1: him for all and all, yes. I shall look upon his like again.
0: Right, and that certainly comes through with Olivia here. I want to. I want to. The last question I want to ask you is something on a more cheerful note. Was I want to ask you about the cover photograph? of your book, which I think is just terrific. The, the, they're at an airport. They've just gotten off of an airplane. They're both smiling. Olivier is caught mid-cackle. She has this mint coat on and these sunglasses. So my question is, you know, how did you or the people at Grand Central Publishing decide on the cover photo? Because there's, you know, there's more than two photographs of these people to choose from out there. And it's just such a great, great cover for this book. And sometimes you can judge a book by its cover. So can you talk about this
1: one and how you decided on it? So one thing... Your audience may not know is you, as a right have no right to choose the cover or the title. um and in my previous book, I hated the title and the cover. And so this time, it was very important to me to have a say, and and so that was in the contract. But you know, people can listen to you and be polite and still go their own way. The editor, Suzanne O'Neill, found the photo uh, and loved it. and and I initially did, and I had some doubts because I was afraid, it might make them look mad. And I really wanted to be respectful of that. The British cover is much more classical and romantic. And at first, I liked the British cover more because this is the book I'm writing. And now I love the American cover <laughs> because it makes you curious. It's full of life.
0: just
1: yeah. the zest in their relationship. And the other thing was the title. And we debated the title. The working title, which everybody hates, was a pact with the devil because that's what one of their friends said they had signed to be together. Mm. But that didn't speak of romance and passion. Right. And I understood that. And then we went through, they, they gave me lists of titles and I couldn't find anything and they couldn't. And I sat down with my former boss, Janice Min who was the editor in chief at billboard and the Hollywood report, who's really the most brilliant editor I've ever worked with. And I said, this is what I'm trying to convey and Janice says, Why don't you just call it Madly? And the publisher loved that. And then I started speaking to the psychiatrist that I was interviewing, and I could see their reaction. And I so didn't want to belittle the mental illness. And then we had a battle and said, I said, I love Madly, but it has to be truly Madly, which has a double entendre. Right. And I can't, I can, I can give, I made a mistake and not. Realizing what a brilliant photo it was, I said that I can't have a book that seems to insult people with mental illness, mm-hmm. and so it ended up being called "end up being called Truly Madly." And I love the title, absolutely sure. love it,
0: as I do. Yeah, and it reminds yeah. me of "Truly Madly Deeply." and yeah, of uh, course, yes, of of the song and the film. But certainly, I mean, uh, you know, one of the things I found is that when I would take a break from reading the book and I would look at the cover again, the cover, the American cover at least, is a reminder of that passion you said in the beginning and about how these people were. And just like, just like all of us, I mean, they, they, I mean, you have these two people that, you know, great movie stars, a tumultuous, it's, it's truly this, this great larger than life thing, but then the book humanizes them. Like, you and, and I think that the pull of those two forces, I hope
1: so, you know, people don't understand the cover is meant to make you, I want to know more. Right. And, and still be true to the book you're going to read. Right. I was a bit worried that it was too tabloidy, you know. Mm-hmm. It's the same with headlines. There was a headline in the New York Times the other day about a woman, the headline was the Queen of Hollywood. There were three, Ari Emanuel's wife. Ari Emanuel is the most powerful agent in Hollywood. I read, by an, one hour after this piece came out, 350 negative comments, they're all saying, how can you call her the Queen of Hollywood? The journalist doesn't write the headline. right? And a great editor is reading that going, We're going to make you want to read the story. You know, years ago, I did a profile of Larry Flint, the pornographer. I spent some time with him. Janice Min, whom I just mentioned, put a headline on. I nearly died. And the headline was, The Private Life of a Dirty Old Man. (laughs) I said, Janice, you can't do that. I said, he's going to go nuts. She said, he's Larry Flint, you know. And it makes people want to read it and also is what it's about. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it certainly worked on me. And I and I assure anybody listening to this, it will work on you too. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. So, Stephen, it's been great talking to you today. Truly Madly, Vivian Lee, Lawrence Olivier, and the romance of the century. It's a great read. It's out in hardcover. You can pre-order the paperback now. If you're wondering whether to get I'm telling everyone that you can hear this, anyone that can hear my voice, get the book. It's terrific. Thank oh, you, Stephen.
1: Thank you so much. It's funny because it's four years of your life. And then <laughs> It goes and it becomes the past, you know. So I so appreciate you doing this interview.
0: Sure. It's great talking to you.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks,
0: everybody.